Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. One of the most gifted ministers to ever stand behind this sacred desk was Dale Yoakum. This sermon was preached at Seabreeze Camp Meeting in Hope Sound, Florida in 1980, and it's titled, Be Ye Holy. I know you're going to enjoy this excellent message. And on, keep passing it on, keep passing it on, keep passing it on, and on. I want to read this morning from 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 14. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, forasmuch as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who by him do believe in God that raised him from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth, through the Spirit, unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Now I want to take three words out of verse 15 as the text and the topic for this morning. Be ye holy. These are words of Peter the Apostle. When Jesus found him, he wasn't of apostolic quality or saintly character. When Jesus found him, he was a very ordinary person, gravitating toward the lower levels of society, infected with profanity, 
a sleepy-headed kind of individual, very impulsive, very profane, very crude, and going deeper in sin. But Jesus saw him and loved him and called him and changed him. Jesus took special care for Peter. He gave him special warning in those days before the trial death of our Lord. He saw the dangers to Peter of the trials ahead. Very quickly after the resurrection, Jesus got to Peter privately. We don't know what he said to him. But a number of New Testament writers tell us that one of the first ones that Jesus met after his resurrection was Peter. He sought him out. He knew what Peter needed. He encouraged him to to rise again over his fall and his betrayal. He encouraged him to get to Pentecost. And he did. He got to Pentecost. And that man that was sinking toward the lower levels of society became the spokesman for the whole band of apostles, the outstanding spokesman for the early church. He appreciated what Pentecost can bring into the life of one single individual. He became a holiness preacher. He wasn't ashamed to say so. When he looked back and interpreted what happened on the day of Pentecost, he said, God gave us the Holy Ghost and purified our hearts by faith. In every chapter of both of his epistles, he gets on the subject of holiness or purity. The life of holiness and the character of holiness and the works of holiness. He believed in it. He preached it. He wrote about it. And he lived it. Oh, he still had his prejudices, he still had some inconsistencies, but by grace he came through them and let the holiness of God shine out through his life. If it could happen to Peter, it can happen to any of us. If God could do that for a man like Peter, friend, he can reach the level of anybody in the house and make you shine with the character of Christ. Oh, hallelujah. That's good news for us, isn't it? I want to ask some questions and try to answer them from the word. Why must we be holy? And I declare to you it is not an option. This is a command as clear and simple as any command in the Bible could possibly be. Be ye holy. Now, The Greek makes it very plain that this is a command to Christians. It is in that lightning tense indicating an instantaneous action which could perfectly well be expressed become holy. Become holy. And it is a word of command to those who are already believers. In verse 14, they're addressed as obedient Children, they're not rebels. These are obedient children, and the command is become holy instantaneously by a mighty working of God's grace, not by a gradual human achievement, not by discipline, although discipline has its proper place in a sanctified life, 
but by the mighty working of God's grace, become holy. That's for believers. This is not an option, friend. This is a command of God's word. If there were no other reason why we should become holy, it's because, as Peter says, it is written. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. If a person is born again at all, if he is truly a child of God at all, one of the certain marks of the new birth and marks of identity with a heavenly father is that we want to obey him. If you don't want to obey God, you're not his child. If you haven't repented of all disobedience and all sin of every variety, inward and outward, if you haven't renounced all sin, you're not a child of God. You're not in the kingdom at all unless you have totally renounced all sin. When a person comes to a recognition that there is a deeper realm of sin and inner manifestations of sin, if he is really a child of God, he wants deliverance from that. Now, I should add a note of explanation. I know there are some people whose minds have been trained in a wrong theology, and they do not believe in second definite holiness experience. But if they are truly children of God, they do not desire to have sin in their life. And I've been in prayer meetings overseas, especially with missionaries and lay people of this kind who were not holiness in their theology. But I've listened to them in their earnest prayers. Oh, God, do something for my heart. They recognized a deeper need in them. And though theologically they were not committed to total cleansing, in their innermost desires they wanted deliverance from what they recognized as sin within them. Whatever our theology is, whether we want to adopt a particular theology, that's beside the point right now. If we are really children of God, we don't want to entertain sin anywhere in our lives. It was Robert Murray McShane who said, A real desire after complete holiness is the truest mark of having been born again. Amen. If a person is a child of God at all, he wants to obey God, and certainly he wants to obey God in following his will for holiness. We had in our school out in Kansas for quite a number of years a man who had been trained as a lawyer. He had his doctor's degree in jurisprudence or the practice of law. Down in Pittsburgh, Kansas, where my father-in-law was holding a revival meeting, this doctor of law came from the local university and dropped in at the little church where my father-in-law was preaching holiness. This uh, doctor of law had been converted. He had been truly saved. He was walking in the light as he knew the light from God's word. And so he listened to this preacher of holiness, he didn't just bat it down and cast it aside. He opened his mind to consider this. And he said, if this is really in God's word, I'm going to follow it. Nobody could do any less than that if he's truly a child of God. If this is really the truth of God's word, I'll follow it. 
After the meeting was over, he shut himself up for several days in the YMCA where he was living. There he opened the gospel, particularly the gospel of John, and searched it with an honest approach. Is this in God's word? Is this really what God has for me? And as he studied and the Spirit directed him, he decided it is. It is here in the word. It is for me, and I will have it no matter how long it takes me. He found the grace. He found the satisfaction of his heart's need. He was sanctified holy. He was filled with the love of God. He came and joined the teaching staff in our Bible college. I heard him testify one time. He said, I don't know how I ever enjoyed the dryness of law when there was something so juicy as holiness. Well, I don't know either. I don't know how some people get along with the things that are as dry as they have when there's something so full and overflowing as this life of the fullness of God within our hearts. It's a command out of God's word. Another reason Peter gives why we must be holy is because God himself is holy. Now this is beyond our comprehension that God wants us to share his own character with him. He wants to have fellowship with us. God's heart is big enough, infinitely vast enough, friends, that he has a special place in his affection for every single one of us who are here today and every other creature he's ever made. And his heart will be satisfied only if you enter his heart of fellowship and he enters your heart in fellowship, and he binds you and himself together in the fellowship of his holy character. God can have fellowship with people who are very ignorant in their minds. Thank God. The Lord preserveth the simple. Isn't that wonderful? He doesn't say, be intelligent as I am intelligent. We can have fellowship together. Oh, that would leave out a heap of us here. That would leave all of us out. He does not say, be omnipotent as I am omnipotent, and we can have fellowship together. He gets close to weaklings and loves them and shares with them and helps them to become strong. He does not say, be omnipresent. You have to be everywhere present as I am everywhere I'm present uh, to have fellowship with me. That would leave us all out too. But he does say, be holy for I am holy. And that's what he makes possible for us because that is the basis of full fellowship with him. Brother Knapp so blessedly sang, he has rent the veil in twain so we can enter into his holy." the holy of holy, to have fellowship with him. That's the note on which our fellowship abides or depends. A musician one time went into a china shop in New York, and he asked the proprietor of that china shop where there were fine goblets and fine pieces of china and cut glass and so on, He asked the proprietor of that china shop, would you have any goblets here that are tuned to the key of C? The proprietor said, I have the faintest idea, sir. We don't buy goblets by key. 
We don't buy anything else by key. I have the faintest idea whether any goblet. I don't even know what you're talking about. And the, uh, the musician said, well, if you give me a few moments to move around in your china shop, I can soon identify every goblet in this shop that's tuned to the key of C. And in rather wonderment, the proprietor said, well, help yourself. It's all right with me. If you can find them, I'm glad to sell them to you. The musician had a tuning fork with him. And he carried his tuning fork around in the various places and on the shelves. After he had struck his tuning fork, he set the base of it down on the shelf where the goblets were, and then he listened. Everything was quiet, and he listened. And as he moved his ear around, he'd pick out this goblet and say, yes, that's one of them. And he'd pick out another and say, that's one of them. Because as the vibration of that shelf was activated by the tuning fork, every goblet that was properly built to respond sympathetically to the C vibration began to vibrate and sing. That's my natural rhythm. That's my note. And every goblet in the shop that was tuned to the key of C was soon singing with the tuning fork. And the musician picked them up and said, these are the ones I want. Those that were not so tuned kept quiet. Are you in tune to the holiness of God this morning? Or does that leave you strangely unmoved? Isaiah went into the temple one day and he heard the seraphim singing, shouting one to another in responsive chorus, Holy! 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 The note was sounded. And he said the post of the temple began to vibrate. That was their rhythm, too. That was their note. This temple was built to respond to the note of holiness. And the post began to vibrate. Hey, that's my note. Holy. 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 And Isaiah said, I don't vibrate to that. There's something wrong with me. That leaves me cold. I'm out of tune. Woe is me. I am undone. That's not my note. But I am determined to get in tune. God brought a cleansing coal to his lips and to his heart. And Isaiah got in tune and he began to sound off holy, holy, holy. Oh, praise God. He has a grace. He has a cleansing whereby, friend, you can come in tune to the holiness of God. Yes, sir, in a house like this, right here, like this congregation, there are some people that are motivated. They soon respond. That's my note. That's my key. I respond to the holiness. Holy, holy, holy. That's my note. That's my character. God has put me in tune to his holiness. Yes, sir, that's a part of it, Brother Harden. Hallelujah. That's my key. That's my character. By the grace of God, I respond to that. And everything that is holy attracts me. And everything that is unholy repels me. There are some other people at the same time that are strangely frozen by this emphasis on holiness. That appalls me. That repels me. That leaves me cold. That's because you have something wrong in your character. 
There's something ungodlike about your character. There's something that will never feel comfortable in heaven in your character. God wants us to be in tune with himself. May I proceed and ask another question? What are the results of being made holy? One of them is cleansing. The emphasis is on cleansing. That's part of the emphasis, I should say. That's what Peter referred to when he looked back to Pentecost and said our hearts were purified by faith. We had a mighty cleansing there that day by faith in the risen Christ. He did something for our hearts. He purified our hearts until he brought us into that harmony with a holy God. Now, Peter acknowledged as he wrote this that there had already been a measure of cleansing. When we're regenerated, there is a wonderful cleansing that goes on. And sometimes the word sanctification applies to that, the washing of regeneration. Over in chapter 4, writing to these believers, he points out some things that have already gone out of their life. Chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. The time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excessive wine, revelings, banquetings, abominable idolatries. That's what you used to be. But that's all gone if you're a child of God. They think it's strange now that you run not with them to the same excessive riot and they speak evil of you. That's what it is to be a Christian today like it was there. There are people think you're very strange because you don't like the things they like. You don't go to the places they go to. There's been a mighty cleansing already. But Peter says now there has to be a deeper cleansing. There has to be a cleansing that goes deeper than this abstinence from these outward violations of God's word. And in chapter 2, he points out this area of deeper cleansing. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now laying aside all malice. That's a hard attitude. And all guile. It's a hard attitude of hypocrisy and treachery, deceitfulness. And hypocrisy. That's a hard, hard attitude. And envy. And evil speaking, that's where this heart attitude generally shows up first in the words of the mouth. Leaving these all aside as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. I want you to notice something also down in verse 22 of this chapter. He said, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth, through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. Now, this is what you have done. And in verse 23, he says, being born again. You are born again. You have purified your souls in obeying the truth. Now, see that ye love one another. And this is a command. And it, too, is in the lightning tense. The Greek air is tense. This is to be an instantaneous thing. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. He is saying there has been a measure of purification going on in your life. You have been born again, but now 
see that something else happens, and that is a purification of the heart and an abounding love flowing out of your life. I began to... Praise the Lord, Mary. You do have something to praise God for. Amen. Is it working this morning? Good. Praise the Lord. Mary came from Roman Catholicism, and she was in my Theology of Holiness class here last month, and she wasn't sanctified at that time. You are this morning. Praise the Lord. Wonderful. In this, in this 22nd verse, Peter refers to the purification of our souls and the purification of our hearts. And I got to wondering if Peter was really making a distinction or was he just tossing words around loosely. So I searched out the writings of Franz de Litch in his Christian psychology where he takes these various words and traces them all the way through the Bible. And Franz de Litch says that the soul, as it's used in the scripture, generally speaking, refers to one compartment of our life particularly the area of our passions and our affections, but that the heart represents the center or control room of all of our moral life. So the heart is a more inclusive term than the word soul. It is as if he is saying, Jesus has come in and occupied the guest room in this house. But now I want him to take over as owner of the whole place. Now, if I were to come into your home, as I go in lots of homes, to spend a weekend of services, and you would put me up in your home, I just know you people well enough to know that you'd give the bedroom a special cleaning, a special going over. We just don't go into dirty, fouled-up bedrooms. God's people are neat and tidy. Oh, most of them. They're rare exceptions, but uh, most of them are. You would fix up the guest room and put everything in a nice place until it looked fluffy and attractive and sleepable. That probably would, it would probably not be true that you renovated the basement just to entertain us for the weekend. I went with my wife after we got home from the mission field a few years ago through the part of the country where a cousin of mine lived. We hadn't seen her and her family for a long time. Uh, we informed her that we would be coming through, and she invited us to spend the night there. Went and spent the evening with the family. And sure enough, she had fixed up the bedroom until it was very nice, very pleasant, very accommodating. During the evening, her sweet little daughter, about six years of age, sort of took a liking to me. And while the mother was off in some other part of the house, she took my hand and said, Come with me. And so uh, <clears throat> I came with her, and she took me upstairs and started down the hall. And, and she grabbed a hold of a door and opened it up and said, This is Mommy's closet. What a closet. I could, I could see what all she had to move out of the bedroom to make it habitable for us. Things began to fall out on the floor when the little girl 
opened the closet door. The mother would have been horrified if she had known that I was being shown through the closet. It wasn't prepared for guests. Only the guest room was prepared. Peter's saying something like this. You've invited Jesus into the guest room. of your, your affections, your desires have been changed. And thank God they have been changed. The, our soul life is changed. The things we used to desire, we don't desire them anymore. The things we used to dislike, we now begin to like. The people of God, the house of God, the word of God, the name of God. Our desires have been changed. But Peter says now there needs to be a deeper cleansing when the motivation, the intelligence, the evaluation, the ambitions, the whole of your life is penetrated with the character of Christ himself. And it can be done in a moment of time when his divine love penetrates you and motivates you and controls your whole being. Jesus doesn't just occupy the guest room now. He comes and takes over the music room. He does. He takes over the reading room. He does. He takes over the reading room. He takes over the family room. He does. He rules in the family room. He takes over the washroom. He takes over the dressing room. He does. He's in control in the wardrobe. He's in control in the storeroom. He's even in control in the garage. And if there be any other room, it is comprehended simply in this. He takes the whole thing. He's the owner. He's the chief resident here. He's no longer just a guest in this home. He is the possessor. He is the ruler. He is the controller of the whole thing. He purifies the whole until the reading room and the music room and the family room and the garage and the storeroom are all harmonized with His holiness. Hallelujah! He cleanses through and through. But He not only cleanses, He fills. He fills this life of ours until all of those things that Peter mentioned are removed. Guile, the deceitfulness of the heart. Hypocrisy, this tendency to criticize other people while excusing worse things in ourselves. I've met some of them around Hobesound, pointing there, I can't have confidence in that. I can't be a Christian because of them and them and them. What about me? That's what Jesus said hypocrisy is, pointing out the wrong in other people. They call themselves Christian. At least I don't call myself a Christian. At least I'm on. Honest? No, you're not being honest. You criticize the faults in others while you have worse ones in yourself. You're not being honest. You're being a hypocrite. Put to an end. Then he begins to do something positive for us. He begins to fill us with positive graces. And the one he mentions straight away is that one of love. I guess it's all right if two preachers in the same camp meeting keep hammering away at the, the thought of love when every writer in the New Testament does. It's Paul's emphasis, it's John's emphasis, and here it's Peter's emphasis. Eight times he gets on this theme of love in this first epistle alone. The first time he mentions it, it's our love for Christ. 
him whom having not seen, ye love. Isn't that amazing? I've never seen Jesus face to face, but I love him supremely this morning. Never looked upon his countenance. I've never seen his pierced hands, but I love him supremely this morning, though I've never seen him. Isn't that amazing? What will it be when I do see him? I don't know. I'm looking forward to that time. What will it be when this raptured heart looks upon his countenance and his glory? And he says, I bought you to, to sit by me in my throne. I bought you with my own precious blood. What a day. We love him whom we have never even seen. That's his first mention. Once he mentions love of life. Don't you love life as it is in Jesus Christ this morning? Isn't it wonderful just to live for Jesus? All of the other six times he's talking about loving one another. Loving one another. Love one another with a pure heart fervently. A pure love. A genuine love. A fervent love. That fervent means fiery hot, melting hot, burning hot. Love. For love will cover the multitude of sins. My dear adopted son, Bob Myers, in the uh, camp meeting, his he was saved right out of the raw. His father was an atheist, owned a truck garden, and from association with Bob and his father, I learned their practice of preparing the soil for planting the seed early in the spring. They took the soil and put it in a pan and baked it in a hot, hot oven. They baked that soil until every weed seed that could possibly have infected that soil was destroyed. So that when the good seed was planted in it, it wouldn't have to battle against these enemies on the inside. It's enough to battle against things that come from the outside. It seems like this is something of what Peter has to say. There is a fervent love. There is a love that refines the heart by fire until those old impulses and motivations that were sinful and carnal and hurtful are utterly destroyed out of the heart and are replaced by pure, hot love. We can have a fervent love among ourselves. Now, the devil is already always going around sowing his seed of dissension and suspicion and criticism and fault-finding and gossiping and murmuring. But if it falls on a seed that is still white-hot with the love of God, those seeds will be scorched before they'll germinate. This love will cover or prevent a multiplication of sins. The seed just won't sprout and grow where the soil is baked in hot love. And Peter says, above everything else, keep this kind of love hot in your life. You can't preserve it hot in a deep freeze. You have to keep at the source of fire. You have to keep the current, keep the fire, keep the love alive. And these other things won't find any place to grow in our life. He speaks about growth. Newborn babes, if you have these things put out of your life, you'll grow by the word of the Lord. 
One of the things that concerns me most deeply as I move around among the churches is the number of people that look fairly respectable. But as you go back or you go through meetings, you come upon people that are just not growing. They're the same this year as they were last year, two years ago, five years ago, doing exactly the same things in exactly the same way. Well, really, that's pretty good for some of them. But they're just not growing. Virtually every pattern of their life is habitual. Well, thank God for good habits. But habits don't grow. Habits do not grow. A habit is a pattern of doing the same thing the same way every time over and over and over. That's what a habit is. Habits don't grow. Some people are in the habit of getting to church on time, kneeling for prayer, having daily devotions, giving their tithe, coming to church three times a week. They have it settled as a pattern, and what they do, they're doing habitually, but they're not growing. What you're doing habitually is not growth. It's habit. It may be a worthy habit, it may be a good habit, but you're not growing by habit. And some people are doing virtually everything they're doing by habit. Just going through the motions. Better to have a good habit than a bad habit. But that's not growth. That's my emphasis. God wants us to be growing. And if we are looking into the sincere milk of the word, the pure, sincere word of God, we'll be growing. Every one of us will be growing. We ought to have new insights into the Word. We ought to be expanding the effectiveness of our service. Every single one of us. However many years you've been following along this way, you ought to be going up the mountain for Christ, climbing for Him, growing with Him, with an enlarged understanding and appreciation and knowledge of Christ and a more effectiveness in service all the time. Another area that Peter mentions here is modesty that marks a holy life. In chapter 3, he gets on it, and he relates it to holiness. There is an appropriate modesty in our adornment. He points it out in chapter 3, verse 3. Speaking particularly here of women, but the same thing would apply to men and does in other parts of the word. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair. I was in the uh, museum of Alexandria, Egypt last September. And I got fresh insight into these warnings of the New Testament writers about women's hairstyles. They have hundreds and hundreds of little images in there made back in the days of the New Testament and preserved ever since. And I was astounded at some of the women's hairdos in those, in those little figures that had been preserved across these uh, centuries. Some of the women's hairdo was so elaborate, so ornate, that there were towers and piles and platforms and curls and whirls. Uh, a woman could not possibly have reached the top of her hairdo with her own hands. She would have had to climb on a ladder to get to the top of it. Hey, there's something wrong with that illustration in there. (laughs) Perhaps she had to get somebody else. 
But those fantabulous hairdos. I don't wonder that Paul and Peter got on the issue of women's hairstyle. I'm, I'm not at all surprised. I noticed something else, that the men in those days had neatly cropped hair. Now, these people that want to argue that back in those days the men wore shoulder-length hair, as some of the pictures of Jesus declare, I can't buy that. All of the men pictured there, Nero himself and the other Caesars and other men of that time, they had neatly cropped hair, very similar to the way my hair is done today and most of the men who are here. I'm not surprised at Peter's word, women should not have plated. That just means, I guess, mountains and worlds and pillars and towers and interwoven strands of gold and silver and other things, fantabulous stuff. He says, let it not be the wearing of gold or putting on of apparel. I just had it pointed out to me recently, a study has been made throughout the writings of Peter as well as elsewhere. And you notice here in verse 3 and 4, he says, not this outward adorning, but the hidden man of the heart. And that pair of words, not this, but this, wherever it is used, it points out two entirely exclusive things. I know the modern interpretation of this is that what Peter is saying is just use it in moderation. Let me give you a couple of illustrations out of, the, out of Peter's writing and see if that applies. In chapter 1, verse 18, which I've read in your hearing, ye know that ye were not, here's the not of that twin, ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, but, there's the other one, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ. Is Peter meaning to say that part of our redemption was purchased moderately with corruptible things. Part of our salvation is to be bought with silver and gold, and the rest of it is to be bought with the blood of Jesus. Is that what Peter's trying to say? Absolutely not. Or look down in verse 23. Being born again, not, there it is, not of corruptible things, but of incorruptible by the word of God. Is Peter trying to say that in a moderately small amount, we are born again with corruptible things, but the rest of it primarily, our primary emphasis is on the word of God. Is that what he's trying to say? Absolutely not. He's ruling one thing out entirely and saying all of our salvation is by something else, every bit of it. And it's the same twin pair of words that he uses here in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3. Our adorning is not, period, it is not, these outward things of plaiting up the hair and wearing of gold and putting on these things, that's not our adornment. Our adornment is the inner man of the heart. This is where we're to adorn the gospel of Christ is by our character, by our inward heart attitude, not by these outward things. Well, you can carry that on as you like. That's thrown in extra. Let me ask the final question, how are we sanctified holy? I trust there are people that are really hungry to be made holy. You want to be, and you want to know how. Did you notice that in the portion of Scripture that I read, all three persons of the Godhead are emphasized? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost are all vitally concerned about your character. 
This is no side issue, my friends. This is no mere trifling, incidental matter. God the Father commands it. Be holy as I am holy. He's involved. It's his command. It's his plan. It's his prerogative to determine the kind of people he wants as his children. Christ the Son is involved. He paid the price of our redemption with his own blood. We're not redeemed with corruptible things, Peter says, but with the precious blood of Christ. It is no option whether we be holy people or not. Jesus suffered without the gate that he might sanctify his people with his own blood. He's totally involved in this. And the blessed Holy Spirit is involved. In verse 23, it's pointed out, this purification of your soul in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. It is the Spirit that works it into our heart. God willed it and planned it. Jesus bought it and provided it. The Spirit comes right in and applies it and causes it to work in our lives. Don't you love him for it this morning? The Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost unitedly involved in this tremendous enterprise of taking sunken, sinful, lost humanity forgiving their sins, washing them in regeneration, and then so purifying their hearts that it's our hearts that they are suitable dwelling places for God in three persons to feel at home while he's taking us to that home over there. The greatest thing God has ever done is not to prepare, but to prepare the saints for heaven. He does it by sharing his own character with us. Peter says there are two things that relate to us and our responsibility. Total obedience and total trust. In obeying the truth through the Spirit, we couldn't obey the truth if it weren't for the Spirit's help. It is God that worketh in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. We could never do it by ourselves, but we can do it with the Spirit's help. The Spirit can energize us, He can motivate us, He can strengthen us, and help us to obey God as we know the will of God. Total obedience, total surrender to the will of God, and total trust. Verse 21, he says, that your faith and hope might be in God. Holiness can be summarized on our part in these two things. Total surrender to obey the full truth of God. And that involves renouncing, rejecting, putting away everything that doesn't want to yield, that is not harmonious with the word of God. And then total trust. Total trust that the God who bought it, planned it, purchased it, and wants to apply it will keep his promise and do what he has said he would do for us. I praise God for the day this grace came into my heart. What a difference it's made in my life. I know, as nobody else could know, how fluctuating I was. Oh, I never turned back and rebelled against God. I can never remember a single day in my whole life when I rebelled against my God or my parents. 
From the first time the presentation of the truth of God was made to my consciousness, I said, I'm going this way. It was never, never changed. But I was so up and down. I was so unstable, clear up into my teenage years, relying so much upon my feelings that a lot of you have been. But I learned by the personal teaching of God himself, permanency and grace does not come by feeling. It comes by a solid commitment of our will, that whether I feel good or feel bad, whether I feel a high peak of emotions or a low peak of depression, my will can be set. And I remember the days when I was counting the cost and declaring my surrender to the will of God. I remember going through a gate on the old farm place and taking a pencil out of my pocket, writing on the gatepost, I will be thine and only thine forever. I meant it. That was the total purpose of my life, to follow the will of God. But my heart was not yet satisfied. There had to come a moment, and it came. As I told you the other morning, in a midweek prayer meeting, as I was kneeling, I said, Lord, it's complete. My trust in thee is complete. Take out the unbelief. I rely on you. No more struggling. No more delaying. From this moment on, with my whole being, I'm on record, Lord. I'm trusting your promise. And it worked with me. It will work with you. It will work in everybody. That's the declared method. And God's faithfulness is the undergirding assurance. When we trust him, his faithfulness can be counted on. I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to lose the fire. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. That has been passed. I don't want to lose the fight. I don't want to lose the fight.